half of the electorate or more is citing economic issues. The overwhelming sentiment is a sentiment that things cost too much, things are out of control, and that we need to make a change. Today, I sit down with Big Data Poll director Richard Barris, a data journalist and host of the Inside the Numbers podcast. As we head into the 2022 midterm elections, Barris tells us what he sees on the ground in key battleground states and why a lot of polling these days is simply inaccurate. So many of them no longer even understand the people that they're trying to gauge. And polling is essentially attempting to predict human behavior. How could you do that if you don't know that much about the subject and maybe even dislike them? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Richard Barris, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's great to be here, Jan. Thanks for having me. I, I'm happy to be here. Well, you know, I'm going to do something today with you that I almost never do, which is uh, talk about polling. I'm one of these people that really does not trust the polls, okay? And I almost see them as a kind of way to manipulate public opinion. And I'm definitely going to ask you about that. But all that said, okay, there's all this talk as we speak right now about this big shift in suburban women. And so what is the real significance of this? And is it something that we can actually seriously count on? Yeah, I, I think now, and I've always been a big believer in aggregate, looking at polling in the aggregate, uh, but because, you know, we can get into this a lot because polling has done so poorly in recent cycles of four, last four cycles in, in particular were horrible. Uh, then I generally take a look at, I trust myself more than I trust anybody else, but there are a few others that went, uh, that, that I at least take note of and uh, I trust them to, to attempt to do the best job that they can. But generally the consensus right now, even though some of us are you know on some of the low end of this swing, some of us are on the higher end of this swing, I think it is still very clear that there is a swing uh, right now among independents who have college degrees, and that just happens to make up as well a lot of suburban women, which is fueling overall a lead for the Republican Party on the generic ballot that is pretty historic uh, in terms of that independent margin. And some of the polls that were released today is around 18 points. We had them uh, around 17. So we're all right in that ballpark. And it is significant because it opens up different opportunities for pickups for the GOP that they thought they wouldn't have again for a while. You know, under the era of Trump, they squeezed so much vote out of the, these rural areas, but they had a lot of problems trying to break back into exurbs and metro suburbs, areas like that. And those are the er those are the regions right now that are moving so fast away from Democrats. I think you, I think we're going to find uh, in a few days here that you know it's hard to keep pace with that swing and it's likely to be very understated and the impact is, mm. is likely to be greater than we think. So Richard, I'm going to say this for the benefit of our audience here. Um, there are, aren't many pollsters that I follow. I follow you um, for multiple reasons because I do believe that you're actually trying to get at the truth, which is obviously very significant and sort of something at a premium these days, it would seem. And you, and you know, to, as a testament to that, your Pennsylvania polling uh, last, uh, you know, last run was pretty spot on. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, that, that Pennsylvania is a difficult state to poll. Thank you for that. Uh, in 2016 and 2020, we did very well. And we did just poll the Senate races as well. And I think that 
some of that national polling we were just talking about, some of that swing, we're just now starting to see that when we poll some of these states. It, the national polling tends to be a leading indicator. And as you go into battlegrounds, which are more, honestly, it's more difficult to poll battleground states. So if you conduct a national poll, it's a larger sample size, you're going after a bigger target population, and the sampling error for subgroups can be lower. When you're polling states, especially diverse states or states that have a big chunk, like Pennsylvania is a big chunk of working class vote, and yet they don't want to talk to pollsters. So it creates this potential for such an, a, a big error, not just a small one. I missed it by a few points, but big errors. You know, and now we saw that in 2020. I mean, the president had leads of excess of seven to 15 points in in that state. And at the end of the day, he barely uh, defeated the former president, Donald Trump, in that state. So uh, it was much closer. And, you know, I think really what it comes down to is that uh, we we have certain minimum requirements for different subgroups other pollsters just don't implement. So I know that uh, the white working class is going to be very difficult uh, to reach in that state. It's There's Appalachia regions that look more like, you know, uh, Eastern Ohio and West, and West Virginia than they do Philadelphia. And those regions are incredibly difficult to poll. Even parts of what we call Dutch country, extremely difficult. You're not going to reach somebody who's a horse and buggy in Lancaster. You're just not. So, you know, to pretend as if uh, you spoke to 250 educated white Democrats in Montgomery County so now you know how that region of the state is going to vote is it, honestly it's pretentious it's mm. extreme and until the industry has a little bit more empathy toward who they're trying to poll number one but also uh, they're they're too they think too highly of themselves they really they think too highly of themselves and their ability and they need to have a little bit more humility so this it's funny because this is exactly what i was thinking on one side empathy on the other side humility i i think it would, <laughs> would probably be valuable um now so yes. you said with some confidence though earlier that you feel like this shift i i asked you if we can count on you know sort of the validity of the polls actually seeing this shift you're saying that you think it's understated. You're saying you think it's going to grow. Why do you feel so confident to say that? History, uh, you know, this uh, this idea of a first term incumbent midterm, especially when we're dealing with issues like economics. You know, the party that's in power, it's they're they're less about you know even the victory when the party is a victory. It's not an affirmation of that party in a first term incumbent midterm. It's always a referendum on the party that people are feeling uh, unease with. Um, you're governing, you're in power, but I feel like the things are kind of spinning out of control. Right track, wrong track is uh, historically negative right now, and the, 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 the spread is historically large. The president's approval rating is not good. So historically, we do have all of these benchmarks and indicators that are predictive that tell us how these things go, and m far more likely than not, we're looking at a last minute break that probably most people will miss. And uh, the, the party that's in power is gonna pay the price. They're gonna pay the political price. And you know, there's only one first term incumbent midterm where we could look back and say in modern history that the, the president's party uh, basically bucked the curse of the midterm. And that was George uh, Bush and Republicans in 2002, but that was a very different situation. We just had 9-11 
People were afraid. And what was the number one issue back then? It was national security. And voters overwhelmingly trusted Republicans more to keep them safe, despite Democrats' best attempts to repeat that environment. And I do believe they were trying with the January 6th commission, they were trying to recreate this environment of fear and terror. You know, there are signs everywhere uh, for Democrats. It's not about inflation. They've even started to tone back on, on the abortion narrative. Now there are signs everywhere that say, vote Democrat because democracy depends on it. They're trying to recreate the O2 only in their own way, the O2 environment. And unfortunately for them, that's just not what voters want to vote on. Voters are voting on cost of living, inflation, economy, and jobs. And mm. there will be, of course, peripheral votes you know, for abortion, things like that. We do have people when we poll say, I'm voting a Democrat because my number one issue is some kind of threat to democracy. You and I had spoken about this before, um, but it's peripheral. It's marginal, very marginal. The overwhelming sentiment is a sentiment that things cost too much, things are out of control, and that we need to make a change. One of the sort of big, let's say, let's call it the megaphone, the corporate media, you know, there was this recent really kind of bizarre uh, attack on Paul Pelosi, right? This has been sort of amplified yeah. in the corporate media as a sort of like evidence that, uh, you know, Republicans are extremists or something like that. So you're, you're telling me you don't think that's going to go very far? They're talking to themselves. They are. And this has been a problem that they have had now for years. Uh, uh, you know, post-COVID environment, I, I think they, they tried pulling a few things like this as a, a campaign strategy, as really a national campaign strategy. But I think they allowed their victory in 20, at least at the White House, right, for, for, for the president. I think they allowed, uh, they fell into that very same trap I was talking about before, that it was an affirmation of their politics and how they think about things. When I think a lot of swing voters, A, didn't like the turbulence of the Trump presidency. We called them the seasick voter. They didn't, it wasn't that they didn't approve of how Trump handled the economy. It's just the boat was rocking every day and they were getting nauseous from it. And Trump was not a comforter. You know, instead of instead of holding their head and saying everything's going to be all right, we're going to make it through the storm, we're going to sail through the storm together. Instead of doing that, you know, he was Trump and he's like, suck it up. We're going to fight. And that's it. We're going to fight on. Some voters weren't like that. And I think Democrats made the mistake of thinking between that and covid that uh, people were repudiating the Republican message and repudiating Donald Trump and affirming them. And that's really not what happened. So post 2020 and the president takes office, all of these measures they're passing are unpopular. Afghanistan happens. He doesn't shut down the virus. Uh, and I mean, you remember he would say, I'm going to shut down the virus, not the economy. That was Joe Biden's promise. Well, something happened and people began to say to themselves, these promises were a little bit outlandish. And honestly, I'm a little disappointed in myself for believing them. I, I don't like this. I think we need to course correct. But Democrats never listened. And they just, one thing after the other, whether it was January 6th or now we're here with this, like you said, very bizarre is, a, is, a, is the word, Jan, bizarre, uh, attack on Paul Pelosi. And they expect Americans to just drop everything not care that they can't fill up their grocery cart, not care that they can't fill up their gas tank, not care that they can't purchase new clothes for their kids, or at least maybe they can, but it's a lot more than it was two years ago. They want them to drop all of those concerns, their latest distraction, and Americans just aren't doing it. And I think Democrats now are honestly 
starting to come to that conclusion, but it's too late. You know, I've got this uh, thing in the back of my mind I want to ask you, but I don't know if you've seen any information around this, but sometime after the uh, 2020 election, um, there was a poll done. Someone, I can't remember who did it now, but basically, you know, the poll was something to the effect of, um, if you realized that the Hunter Biden laptop was a real thing and not, you know, purported Russian disinformation and all this kind of thing, would you have voted differently? And the suggestion was from this poll that there was enough Americans that would have voted differently at the time. So now we're in this situation where I think a, a significant portion of the population understands that that the you know sort of the cover up of the Hunter Biden laptop was the disinformation and so forth. Does that actually play into this at all, or is it? And I'm actually going to get you to tell me what the top five or ten issues are. You said economy, inflation first, afterwards. But first, let, let's cover this. Does the Hunter Biden laptop misinformation uh, fit into this in any way? Well, what I think it does is add to this general feeling that they were duped. And this is something we've been hearing, you know, now we it was just we're coming up in the holiday season again. We really started to be able to see this and hear it from voters the previous holiday season. And people were uh, you know, telling us uh, maybe if, if you voted for Joe Biden, anywhere between eight to 15 percent in any given rematch poll we did would say that they would change their mind now and vote for Donald Trump because of a, a laundry list of stuff. And this Hunter Biden uh, laptop is certainly one of them. If you voted for Donald Trump, it's statistically insignificant. Less than two percent in most of the polls that we have done, less than two percent of Trump voters say they would vote for someone else or vote for Joe Biden. That's it. So he's lost uh, the you know the former president Donald Trump has lost nobody, and there's this pretty significant, easily measurable voter remorse out there. And on the Hunter story, the Hunter Biden laptop story, and the the, the really the pay for play stories that go along with that. When we polled states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, we polled all of these battleground states and asked them if they were aware of those news reports. And in truth, only between 72 and 75% in any one of those states told us they were aware of them. That compares to 2016 when we would ask people if they were aware of the email story or the WikiLeaks, and it was over 90%. In most places, in most battleground states, it was in the 90s, 94, 90. It was a universal awareness of these stories, whereas the media and social media did a great job burying the Hunter story, burying uh, the paper, pay for play questions, the Tony Bobulinski interviews, right? They buried that. And you're looking at about a quarter of the electorate to a fifth of the electorate that didn't know. And now they know. So it definitely it definitely has an impact. And I've seen several polls that uh, like the one you're talking about and asking it in different ways. And I think it's very clear that had uh, America's American voters been aware of that story, we would probably be looking at a very different administration right now. Let's go through what the top issues are for voters right now. I was going to say top five, but just give me sort of the ones that you feel are really major and important and actually will have an impact. They, that's a great question. Uh, in the battleground states, pretty much does mirror what we see nationally, although some states have uh, local things that have gone on. So, for instance, 
in Arizona, election integrity is a lot higher uh, than it is nationally, and it's it's often in the top five. But it's always the same order for the top three to four. I would say going away, the number one issue is cost of living and inflation. And anywhere between a third to almost 40 percent will cite that outright as inflation as their number one voting issue. Another 10 to 15, 16 percent will cite the economy and jobs, and sometimes it's even higher than that. So when you combine them, half of the electorate or more is citing economic issues. That is a catastrophe for Democrats because the Republican leads with these two issues are huge. Nationally, abortion and immigration tend to battle for number three. Abortion has risen. Uh, and that is fueled, we've shown this in a lot of graphics that we've put up for people to see, it's being fueled by Democrats themselves. When you can, we do side-by-side uh, -side charts to show people that the independents are much more closely aligned with Republicans on what they're citing as their issues. That number is always much closer to the Republican share than it is to the Democratic share. Democrats they do about 20 percent will still say inflation is their top issue but the overwhelming number for abortion is just packed with democrats when it comes to independence almost the same amount of independence will cite immigration illegal immigration and border security as their number one issue as uh, the, the the percentage that cites abortion so it's not an issue that's going to do anything for a persuadable voter it's just not. I mean, I would round that out as the number, you know, four, top four in general. Okay. And crime is number five. Sorry about oh, that. Okay, Should have mentioned right. that. Yeah, well, so that was five. actually exactly what I was going to ask. Yes. Because I hear, I mean, you know, I was looking at this video. It was kind of like stunning to me uh, today. Uh, uh, someone cut a clip from The View. Joy Behar is saying basically, crime's not on the rise. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> And I'm like, that, that, that's not what every indicator, including just like, you know, sort of common sense on the streets of New York, where I'm yes. often walking, uh, tells me. So, so how can that be? And it can be worse in some states than it is uh, in others. So for, in Washington, uh, it is an issue, a, a fairly large one. And in New York, we see the governor's race there incredibly close, uh, which is stunning. That really should tell us all that we need to know. Hochul is a bad candidate, but it's a 30-point Democratic state. And so if it's close, folks, we should know what kind of an election this is shaping up to be. Uh, Pennsylvania, the Senate race in Pennsylvania, it has risen as a concern there. And then even nationally, uh, it was generally almost tied with abortion and immigration. So it really, it shot up from the low single digits uh, because I think Republicans are focusing in on it and because the reality on the ground supports it. Whether you're in Phoenix, Arizona, you're in Philadelphia, you're in New York City, in the five boroughs, everybody knows crime is on the rise. The stats back it up and the, the experience, you can see it. It's something that you experience. It's not something that's ethereal, right? It, it, you know it, it you, it's tangible. Uh, you can see it with your own eyes and no matter what the media says, it's one of those things where, what are you gonna believe, your lying eyes or the media? And I think, People like Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania have done a really good job using that issue uh, in their favor because mm -hmm. I, I really, really do think that people should understand when we poll, we always ask people to pick their top issue. But then we get, again, a laundry list, this litany 
it's like a barrage from the voter. Yeah, yeah, it's inflation. It's bad. But really, too, I got to tell you, crime, everything's just messed up. Uh, you know, so they, they give you this laundry list and they pack it in, which sometimes we like to uh, use something called rank distribution, which will actually ask people choose your number one issue, but then rank them in the order of importance. And when we do that crime, you can see may come in number five in a state mm. or nationally. But when you do rank distribution, you can see that it's actually ranked number three or two telling you that. And by the way, abortion falls every time in rank distribution because it's not cited broadly. It's only cited by Democrats. It's how rank distribution works. But it gives you a feeling of the intensity of these issues and then whether or not a voter picked another issue as their top issue, they still have other peripheral issues in their minds that are driving their vote. And then so that it's a really good tool, a really good gauge to be able to to show us what are those issues that are driving them. And again, you know, those crime issues, definitely the economy and jobs, the labor market, uh, they'll rise up. Abortion will fall down. You know, you mentioned election integrity as something that pops into the top yes. five in Arizona, uh, perhaps a few other yes. places. But so so this is actually a question because there was all sorts of talk about illegitimacy of the 2016 election. And then again, in 2020, there's all sorts of talk of illegitimacy of the 2020 election. Um, and there were certainly these activities like, you know, basically Hunter Biden laptop disinformation, which, you know, puts a lot of things yeah. into question, I think, right? So how big yes. is this an issue for people right now? Um, never mind, like, you know, even these kind of votes being shifted and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and again, that does depend state by state, but it is a big issue, especially to Republicans and some independents. You know, whether the media wants to admit it or not, we've asked this question in Arizona, we've asked it in Georgia, a series of questions about election integrity. And generally, one of them is, uh, you know, whether or not uh, you thought it was intentional or not. Do you believe that election officials counted ballots with only carefully matched signature? Or do you believe that they looked the other way and counted ballots up with mismatched signatures? And then the other is very simple. Do you believe something, you know, um, do you believe that uh, lack of integrity uh, certainly impacted the outcome of the election? And, and in states like Arizona, those numbers are really high. Georgia is another one where people, a majority in Arizona told us, no, I definitely believe they counted ballots that didn't match. So they didn't verify them properly. Same thing in Georgia. It doesn't matter whether or not the media thinks that's true. That's the way they feel. So now there's an initiative on the ballot in Arizona that really, I don't think it could have helped out uh, Republican candidates any better if they tried, if they engineered this. But it's a ballot that basically removes uh, the ability to use two alternative forms of identification to vote on election day. And then also there's a voter registration number that must be matched with mail-in votes as a, a, along with the signature. And so that's a simple yes or no, Jan. That's going to pass, and it's going to pass overwhelmingly. We've polled it three times now, but it goes to show you Republicans are overwhelmingly a yes on this referendum, and independents agree with them. So they're going to vote yes as well. So uh, it is, you know, it, it, in a state like Arizona, it's certainly driving part of the argument, a large part of the argument. It is. Well, and I want to talk about this very briefly. You know, there was this talk of, uh, you know, essentially in Georgia, a law was passed, Georgia election law. It was basically touted by 
some incredibly high profile people as a voter suppression law. What I've been hearing is right. that there's record turnout. What's the reality over there? How does that law working out? There is no evidence <laughs> that any of these um, proposals or even some reforms that were enacted uh, ever suppressed the vote. And obviously those allegations are always made uh, trying to anger, especially African-American voters in uh, urban areas, because that's who they'll say these, they target minorities. Uh, minorities themselves don't believe that. Of course you have activists that you'll see on TV touting it. But when we poll, uh, it doesn't matter whether the voters white, black, Asian, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. They don't understand what the fuss is about and they overwhelmingly support measures like this, right? So now we look at the actual data though, look at early voting in Georgia. Is that suppressing anybody? The vote is enormous in the primary. More people voted in that primary than ever. And on both sides, they had very, very good turnout. Republicans outvoted Democrats, but there are more Republicans there than there are Democrats. So that's not shocking. But the bottom line is there never was evidence to suggest that. And the share of minority vote has consistently gone up. And it's not just a share of the overall electorate. It's their share of the eligible population. So their turnout rate has been higher uh, year after year after year. So it doesn't seem that any of these allegations are true. There's just no evidence to support it. And turnout keeps rising. Now, is that something that's also replicated in other states? There is really no state that I could point to that implemented. Another one is Florida, by the way. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of debate over several of the changes that we had made in Florida. And at the end of the day, turnout in Florida has been high. It's a, high, it's a very high participation state. In uh, Texas, there was another law that uh, you know, the same thing in Georgia. Democrats ran out and got the domain Jim Crow 2.0 for Georgia. They had something very similar and said that turnout in Harris County would be down. It would be abysmal. I just was reviewing before the show. I was reviewing early vote in uh, in Texas and the areas where Democrats are lagging are not even high minority areas. They're whiter areas. So there's just, there is no state where I could point and say that that argument makes sense. There just isn't. Well, so yeah. let's talk about uh, the battleground states here and maybe let's look at the governor races. You know, I saw you had stated very recently that, you know, basically you feel Florida is no longer competitive. You feel DeSantis is basically in. Uh, that that's interesting um but just let, let's go let's go state by state through the battlegrounds i guess uh, florida you're not seeing as a battleground anymore you know after 2020 i looked at it and i know people think well over a little over three points three and a half points the president wins the state it's still close three points is close it's not in the state of florida that's not a close race really it's just a very high population state uh, so, you, you know, when, when you squeeze another quarter million votes out of South Florida, which is an area that uh, really Democrats have only three high population areas that are strongholds for them. Now it looks like they're losing one of those three. In Broward County, which is the most Democratic, Republican share of the vote post Brenda Snipes, who used to be the secretary of election or supervisor of election in the post Brenda Snipes era. Uh, Republican share of the vote has actually increased quite a bit. Alachua County is home to Gainesville. It's a liberal area. And of course, Democrats do well there. But Miami-Dade is one of the bigger areas that was their stronghold. And they're going to lose it. 
Donald Trump almost carried it in 2020. It is getting more Republican. There are now more Hispanics who are registered as Republicans in Miami-Dade than there are Democrats. So really the white liberal is the only thing keeping Miami-Dade slightly uh, Democratic at this point as far as registrations. But I think you're going to see with the independent and the Republican vote, I think Ron DeSantis, both Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio are likely to carry Miami-Dade. And I think that this is going to continue for the foreseeable future because I've, I've argued that if the governor and the senator didn't do it this time, if Donald Trump was the nominee in 2024, he absolutely would. There are these new, uh, aside from the, we hear a lot about the Cuban vote and they're so crucial to Republican support in South Florida, but there was a new block of newly naturalized and eligible voters that were coming from Venezuela. The media and other media polls never saw them coming. We saw them on the voter file, immediately started to poll them, and this is going back years and they were a 70 plus percent Trump group. And I just don't think as long as the party stays, the new right doesn't go back to the party of Mitt Romney. I think Florida is uh, no longer really a battleground state. You know, you know all, it, with all things being equal, you know, if there wasn't a flawed candidate or something, a truly flawed candidate, then I think it was, it's just going to be very difficult for Democrats to be able to overcome that. They're not winning Hillsborough County by 30 points. That's not happening. So I just don't know where they would get the votes from, especially if they lose Miami-Dade, which I think they're going to. Um, well, well, let's jump to Pennsylvania, where you've, you've shown sort of, you know, good ability to predict. Yeah, that, that's the one bright spot on the map for Democrats uh, this cycle. Not so much at the Senate level, but the, at the gubernatorial level, I do think the Republican nominee, Doug Mastriano, absolutely could pull out what would, at this point would be an upset. But I think he can do it. We had him down, but he wasn't down uh, by an enormous margin like some of the other media polls have showed. He was down about four points. And the reason is simple. There are just some Trump uh, voters who are and Oz voters who uh, are older and uh, didn't. He got outspent so badly. So there's a lot of people who really don't know anything about Doug Mastriano other than what they have heard about in Josh Shapiro's ads and what the media has told them. You know, the Republican Governors Association never helped uh, Senator Mastriano. They abandoned him like they did the governor's candidate in New Jersey who had a chance to win. They didn't uh, particularly like either one of those guys, so they didn't help them. That's a, a, a sad reality of the RGA, they do this, they pick and choose who they wanna support and they're very establishment. So it, when you're getting outspent, basically 50 to one, it's very tough. And that's, they, the Democrats are smart enough to know that Pennsylvania is the keystone state for a reason. And if you can control Pennsylvania during a presidential election, you can deny someone the presidency. I mean, that, that's a reality. You can choose not to enforce laws. You can choose to, to unilaterally propose new uh, things to election procedures, which we saw in 2020 quite a bit. Uh, and there's a Supreme Court decision about undated ballots. This is a great example. If it's a Democratic governor, they'll choose just not to listen to the Supreme Court. Who's going to stop them? Right. And that's what they're doing. So uh, Democrats really put a lot of money into this race. And I think that's the one bright spot. Uh, and again, it is possible that Oz has, you know, a lifting up effect because we, we our, our poll did show a significant shift to Oz. So it's possible we didn't catch it all. And if Oz does, does win by 
you know, several points, maybe you can get Doug closer. But as of right now, there there is a voter uh, that we see that's a problem for Doug Mastriano. Your older, tend to, you know, tend to be older vote. Interesting. Okay, so we've got, we've got Florida, we've got Pennsylvania. Um, let's jump to Arizona. Arizona, we're polling again right now. And I got to tell you, uh, we had um, a very close Senate race, uh, but for the governorship, we had Kerry Lake up by several points, about uh, just under four points. It's not looking good for Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, because Kerry Lake is doing so much better with some of the same voters that we spoke about in the beginning of the segment. The independent voter typically goes Democrat in Arizona now, especially in modern elections, where their Republicans outnumber Democrats. But if the independent vote breaks enough for Democrats, they can win. Kerry Lake has been consistently stronger among those independent voters than recent uh, Republican candidates statewide. And I mean, it's conceivable she actually wins them by a few. So I, I just don't see how that it could possibly go to Katie Hobbs this time. I, I, I'd be highly, highly surprised. And what about Blake Masters on the Senate race? I, that margin between the two of them has always been around five points, four points. It does look like to me now that the difference between um, Lake and Masters is more like two. So let's say Kerry Lake wins by three or more. I think Blake Masters is going to win. And right now, uh, the Libertarian candidate has dropped out and in, endorsed Blake Masters. That's where some of that vote was going. Uh, he's still on the ballot, so that'll be tricky to see. But of the people we polled that said they would vote for Mark Victor, they hadn't submitted their absentee ballots yet. I mean, some of them had, but the lion's share of his vote was still on the table. And now early voting is almost over. The early voting does not look good for Democrats there, and that's the that's the the uh, X factor. And Blake Masters was he was in a surge. He really was post debate. In the pre-debate poll, we had him trailing uh, Senator Mark Kelly by about four points in Maricopa. And after the debate, uh, the first poll that we did, he was actually leading Kelly by one. So if in this poll he maintains that lead in Maricopa, uh, then he's he's gonna he's gonna pull it off. Fascinating. Well, let's let's go next door to Nevada then. How are things looking there? Yeah. In our for first poll in the, in the state of Nevada, we actually had. Uh, Adam Laxalt, who's running for Senate against the Democratic incumbent, Cortez Masto. We actually had him doing a little bit better than uh, Joe Lombardo, who's running for the governor, and he's running against the Democratic incumbent, Joe Sisolak. This poll is a little bit different. Adam Laxalt's lead is growing a little bit, but Lombardo's lead has, has basically tripled. So uh, yeah. it, that it, it doesn't surprise me because there have been Republican governors who have won that state and won it pretty easily, whereas a senatorial election is much more like the presidential election, you know, in voting patterns and behaviors. So again, this is a state where the shift among the Hispanic vote, especially working class Hispanics, is real and is going to have a big impact because some people want to look at the early vote in Clark County. I think they'd be making a big mistake to make assumptions about who those people actually voted for. And I constantly recall when I think about the state, I constantly recall this middle-aged Hispanic voter. He is a registered Democrat. He didn't really think of himself too strongly as a Democrat. And in fact, us, he wanted to call himself an independent. He didn't even consider himself to be a loyal Democrat. Just years ago, he registered as one, has been voting for them all of these years. 
This year, he's going to vote for Adam Laxalt, and he's going to vote for Joe Lombardo. And he just flatly told us on the, on the interview, I don't have time to worry about learning new pronouns or whatever it is that they think is important and whatever they think I should think is is important. What's important in my life right now is that I live in Clark County, Nevada, and inflation here is double the national average. And that's what I'm voting on this year. So, Mm. I mean, that guy, to me, he said it. He said it all. (laughs) Some of these people stick with you, Jan. No, absolutely. And um, so, okay. well, what other races would you flag here for us to be looking at then? I think that New Hampshire uh, General Baldack for the Senate has a real shot to defeat Maggie Hassan, despite what some of the public polling shows. The internal polling on both sides is very close. And Maggie Hassan has some problems. She has never been like Jean Shaheen, where Jean Shaheen was always pretty well liked, had a positive approval rating, an approval spread that was positive. And when people were asked whether or not they believe she deserved to be reelected when she was up for reelection, they gave her the nod. Yeah, you know, more people would say, yeah, I do. That is not the case for Maggie Hassan. It's never been the case. And now since we're looking at such a, a potential move and Counties like Nassau and Nashua and Manchester, there's a big working class contingency in that county. But there's also those those very educated independents we were talking about and those women we were talking about in New Hampshire. That is a a very textbook example of a state where that swing is going to have some very serious implications. Uh, New Hampshire, one, is a congressional district there that's very competitive. There's a Republican governor who's going to win in a landslide. He is very popular. I think he's going to help Baldack. I think that's going to be a surprise. And I also, I do think Washington State, Patty Murray, her share of the vote in the the primary was uh, very low, very weak. For an incumbent, she fell to 52. We're just not going to know for about five or six, maybe seven days um, because they count their votes incredibly slow. It's almost all universal mail-in voting, but people do still have an election day vote and they come and they bring their ballot in and they submit it there. And that, that those batches of votes take a very long time for that state to verify and process. So, it, you know, it's going to look like a, a resounding Democratic victory. And then over a number of days, as more Election Day vote is counted, it'll chip away and get tighter and tighter and tighter. Kind of a reverse effect of what we're going to see in some of these other states like Pennsylvania. Well, you know, and that's actually very interesting because that's what I would like to know actually ahead of time. And this is something I think we'll we'll do yeah. on our election night broadcast, too, is to actually assess exactly which states, you know, you aren't going to be able to call immediately and which ones you actually might be able to and actually spell that out up front uh, to the audience as well, because I always find it so shocking, right? Because you don't know ahead of time and you maybe someone will tell you here and there, but it's not kind of spelled out in black and white for, for people, right? And again, I'll tell you, the cable and network news, uh, they don't do a good job of it all, at all, right? So it, it would if you did that, you'd be doing a great service to your viewers because we try up front to let people know as much as possible for, for two reasons. One, they should know. They, should, they deserve to know how, how they're conducted because election day is not election day anymore. And in a lot of these places, things are happening that they're, that's not common to them. It's it's silly. It's even. And then that also breeds 
distrust, doesn't it? Right. When people mm-hmm. don't really know what's going on, it breeds distrust. So uh, I think it is a great thing to do. Uh, and we'll try to do that as well. Uh, states like Arizona, we're going to get a lot of that mail in vote first, but then we can safely say most of the election day vote will be counted that night after the first big batch of mail-in vote is reported. But then, unfortunately, there will be people who drop them off on election day, and we're going to be waiting on for those votes to be verified in Maricopa County. That'll take four or five days. In North Carolina, you have three days uh, after election day if it's postmarked before, but it arrives within three days. It'll still get counted. So we have, but I, I think that Senate race will be called on election night i do i I don't think it's going to be that close and if it is um you know then that'll be as one of the surprises that we always know are in store for us pennsylvania is the flip side you know we're going to get some early vote a lot of it and then we'll move to counting the election day vote and then people like me will spend countless hours on the phone with officials trying to find out what estimated share of absentee ballot vote still remaining. And believe me when I tell you, these people aren't the most confident people in the world. And one day you'll get one answer, and one hour you'll get one answer. The next minute you'll get another. So it's very chaotic, and I always think the more information you provide people, uh, then, then the better. And the more they understand what is happening, then the, maybe the less inclined they are to think something's wrong or going on nefarious is happening rich you know um i should have asked this earlier in the in the interview but you know some people and frankly to some extent myself to be perfectly honest view polling as a kind of view that it's been weaponized as part of the political process as part of the means of actually convincing people, uh, bringing them over to particular viewpoints and so forth. So how do you actually, how do you respond to that? And how do you prevent uh, yourself and your outfit uh, from falling into that? Well, you know, at first I, I, I sadly have to concede that I think that's true. That polling is used uh, for propaganda, for, uh, you know, in, information warfare. There's a lot that polling can do. Uh, it can depress a vote. It can excite a vote. It could make a vote complacent. Also, it could raise money, right? I mean, this is what we hear a lot. It's just why I don't like taking a lot of private candidate work. I never did. And if I uh, believe in somebody, I'll, I'll work for them. But for the most part, you're hired as a pollster and they want something they can show donors. You know, And that's just not what I do. That's not the business I, I want to be in. And of course, you know, I get it. There are some people, it's always part of the game, but there are those who take that work on just to do that, to provide that service to a client. Also, media, they used to be the safeguard against the misuse of polling as a weapon of information war. And unfortunately, now I think it's very clear big media has become, you know, one of those abusers and they're the repeat offenders of it. And it's sad because the United States is supposed to be the golden stand, gold standard of democracy. And yet uh, we're no better than, you know, Brazil or some of these other Latin, Latin America polling has been uh, weaponized for a long time. Uh, there's actually a documentary on Netflix playing about it right now. Um, it's pretty interesting, actually, if people want to see it. But uh, I wish I could tell you otherwise, but I can't because it is true. And the most supposed credible news outlets out there are the very ones that are doing this time and time again. Uh, but what, what, how, do, how do I guard against it? 
I'm competitive. Here's the truth. I, I, if I'm, I would love to say, uh, you know, give this speech about how I have, you know, all these ethical boundaries, and that's true. But what really this comes down to is that I'm competitive, and I want to be right. I don't like being second best. I don't, I don't like being third best. I don't like being wrong. And I think somewhere along the way, I, most pollsters were like that. And somewhere along the, la- the way they lost it, they became blinded by ideology and, you know, very much what I was saying earlier, which is that so many of them no longer even understand the people that they're trying to uh, learn about. They're trying to gauge. It, and polling is essentially attempting to predict human behavior. It's very much almost a behavioral social science. How could you do that if you don't know that much about uh, the subject, right? And maybe even dislike them. And that's the truth. Most people in my field dislike them. So they feel that it's just you know, not that big of a deal to weaponize their work against those people. And it, 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 I wish I had a less dire outlook you know, to, to project to you about the industry, but I think we have really, really serious problems, ethical and methodologically. And until people get back uh, to the basics and the drawing board, maybe even separate some of these relationships that are sadly intertang- in, really intertwined with each other, um, they're almost incestuous between media and candidates and the pollster until, until that uh, has better boundaries or there's accountability, like we're seeing RCP do, uh, then I don't think it's going to change. And hopefully, we're moving in that direction, but we'll see. Well, and but this is it's kind of a funny question, right? Because... Well, I guess it comes it's down a sad to sad one. It, it it is, and it, but it comes down to incentive structures, right? If you're incentivized yes. to give the wrong information, then you'll keep giving the wrong information. If you're incentivized, perhaps like you are, to give the right information, so you have people like me actually following you and wanting to know what you think, as you know in your text messages, perhaps too often. <laughs> um, that is also an incentive, and I you we all kind of believe that that would be the incentive for everybody, but it doesn't seem to be anymore. It's not. There's a lot of money in it. You know, without, and I don't often, you know, like to just broadcast people out there to, to uh, put, them, you know, put them up to shame them. But you really could see this dynamic at work, the release of the New York Times polling, which was very different. He made no bones about the fact that the way he polls is much more expensive, even though he didn't really particularly care about how poorly his track record is. So it, to him, it's more about prestige and he knows what the new york times wants him to find right let's be honest he knows what the new york times wants they don't want to publish a poll that says uh democrats are going to lose all four of these senate seats they don't want to do that so there's also no incentive because there's no there's no good incentive because there's no fear of repercussion at all he's never going to lose his job yan never you know, I mean, the New York Times is not going to fire him because he had Hillary Clinton winning the state of North Carolina by seven, Biden winning the state of North Carolina by six, uh, you know, across the board. I could go on and on and on. He has no punishment. So uh, unfortunately, the American Association of Public Opinion Research, they're supposed to be somewhat of a watchdog. There have been good, honest pollsters who have called on them to do something, come up with a censure program uh, or system of some kind that goes after people that obviously are doing this on purpose year after year and they have done nothing because the truth is they're dominated by leftists too so they don't have any incentive 
to uh, you know, I don't know what the proper words punish, but you know, to to highlight and showcase those who repeatedly overestimate the support of one party over another year after year, and it's a it's a shame. It's all because George Gallup loved this work. He is obviously very much a founder and a pioneer of American public opinion research, and I I believed in what I still do believe what George Gallup believed, which is that. Public polling serves a really important function in any self-governing society. And if you cannot rely on them for elections because they're constantly putting out either garbage or propaganda, intentional garbage, uh, then what does that has serious implications for the rest of what polling means to a democracy? So congressmen who are thinking about passing a bill, how do they know whether their constituents truly support the bill or not, right? They're looking at some public polling. But believe me, folks, if the polling on elections is wrong, the polling on how people feel about certain issues, policy standpoints, that's wrong, too. If you can't trust a, you know, a pollster to get the horse race right at the end of the day on Tuesday, right, then you can't trust that any of the other work that they're doing is accurate either. And so it, it, it's, it's sad because it takes away a tool from representatives and what is supposed to be a representative government. So that's what Richard Gallup wanted. Richard, as we finish up, just give us a quick shot at what we can really expect based on your numbers uh, come election day. So more times than not, uh, these things do break at the last minute the way that we're seeing them. And the more likely it's, uh, outcome is that it ends well for that incumbent party. That being said, there are always those surprises. So our modeling takes into consideration that, you know, maybe not every single one of these competitive Senate races go, but the most likely outcome is that Republicans take the Senate with at least 52 seats. And um, in the House, I really do think if they are on the high end of 19 points to 17 points with this group of independents, then they're, they're, uh, they have a very good chance of breaking their historic cap in the House, which is 247 seats. So projecting the Republicans would gain 33 to 38 seats would be an average moderate projection, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 45, where they're now crossing the 250 line. That's I would say is on the higher end of the forecast, but it's not impossible. And it really could end up that not only do they get that in the in the House, they're at 247 or 252, uh, but that the Senate is just a complete wipeout. New Hampshire falls. Uh, North Carolina, I don't really believe, is that competitive anymore. It can be, but not this cycle. Ted Budd is, is strongly favored there. Warnock is uh, not going to avoid a runoff in Georgia. So now that we look around this map and we're, we're seeing that Democratic incumbents are uh, themselves in real trouble, they have no pickup opportunities, or at least it gets very slim. And even if they do, they would still have to use one of those to offset losing two or three of their own incumbents. So that's why, again, uh, the most likely outcome is 52, but it could be higher. It could go to 53, even 54. It could, without a doubt. It's possible. Well, Richard Barris, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It was great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank you all for joining Richard Barris and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.